Hello everyone and thank you for joining me on Culture Flow, the podcast where we discuss how culture moves through us and informs how we move through the world. My name is Laurentina Maliga. I am an intercultural specialist and personal development enthusiast and I'm here to help you become a great global citizen. For this episode, I have the immense pleasure to be joined by a great and amazing guest, Akin Thomas, a Black British husband, father and CEO of a learning and development company based in London. So I met Akin about a year and a half ago during a leadership training in Athens, which was organized by the Ubeles Initiative, an African diaspora intergenerational organization based in London. So following the murder of George Floyd by the police um, and the protests that ensued, um, as well as the murders of Ahmad Arbery before that and Breonna Taylor, Tony McDade, um, the civil unrest that followed, as well as the protests, uh, did trigger a lot of trauma amongst um, people from the community. Uh, and I did feel that uh, emotional trigger as well as a Black woman. And so to try to navigate through these hard times, um, in the best way possible for me and um, and for my mental uh, mental health, I made a list of people that I would reach out to in order to speak, to talk, to have conversations about this. And among those people, Akin Thomas was was in my list, was on my list. Um, because I knew that he would bring a perspective that I did not have from the conversation we'd had during the leadership training. I knew he'd be able to bring um, some sort of a perspective, a vision uh, of the situation that I did not have. And I also reached out to just to check on another member of the community and see how he was handling all of this. Sure enough, his response was exactly what I needed at the moment, and it did bring another perspective. And so I asked him to join me on this podcast so that we would be able to have a conversation about all of this, about what it meant to be um, a Black man for him in the UK and 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 what were the strategies um that he was adopting as a black man, black father, and a black husband, a black CEO. Um, and that's when I I just stumbled upon um, an open letter that he wrote and published on his LinkedIn, um, simply entitled Black. Uh, I urge you to all just go to Akin Thomas page on LinkedIn, profile on LinkedIn, and read this letter. Um, it, it's unapologetic, it's real, and it's so brave. And so I could not wait to have this 
conversation with him on the podcast. And let me tell you, this conversation is just gems on gems on other gems. So I'm telling you, you, you just don't miss a second of it. I'll leave you to it. Hi, Akin, and thank you so much for joining me on this podcast. Hi, Laurentine. Good to, good to spend some time with you. Thank you. Thank you for being here. Um, so I'm going to ask you the first question, which I usually ask my guests. Uh, could you please introduce yourself in a few words? Okay, so my name is Akin Thomas. Um, professionally, I am the CEO of an international learning development consultancy called AKD Solutions. I founded the company about 11 years ago. Um, uh, personally, um, married to an amazing woman, Denise, two amazing children um, who basically have really been core to everything that I do. Um, yeah, that's, that's me, an elder in my church. And also, you know, I also sit on a charity board as well. So I support a charity that um, looks at domestic violence, human trafficking, and forced, uh, forced marriage. So those are really kind of some of the big parts of who I am. Yeah, amazing. Um, thank you so much for this introduction. Uh, so I would like to start with uh, talking about the letter, the open letter that you wrote and published on your LinkedIn. So I would advise everyone to go to Akin Thomas's profile on LinkedIn. So this letter was, uh, you, you simply entitled it Black, mm -hmm. which I loved. <laughs> um, I found your letter really moving and I was struck by how unapologetic you were about speaking your truth as a black man. Uh, so I would like to thank you, really thank you for speaking up about this. And as the CEO of AKD, as you said, which is an international learning and development company, were you hesitant, hesitant about how how you could speak, um, speaking up about this in such a direct way? Um, the short answer is no. Um, I wasn't hesitant at all because For me, I, I think that a couple of things. Firstly, I believe that these are pivotal moments and you, you either step up or, you mean, just shrink away. And I felt that it, I had a obligation to, to step up. Um, and I think the other thing for me is that I'm very comfortable with the business and I'm also very comfortable with my clients and, in fact, The response for my clients has been overwhelmingly, yeah. Every single one of them has been absolutely supportive. They have been humbled by the words. They've been encouraged by the words. And so for me, in, in terms of those who I know, yeah, absolutely not. For some who will be put off by what I wrote, um, to be honest, I don't really care. Um, I'm confident enough to know that what we do as an organization is good enough that if you don't want to work with us, others will and I, I hope that doesn't sound arrogant but what I'm not going to do in this season is allow commercial drivers to override yeah fundamentals which have to be addressed yeah absolutely absolutely it doesn't sound arrogant it feels like you're 
absolutely confident in not only what you have to offer, but also the way in which you deliver it. And I, and I absolutely feel like anyone who's listening could absolutely learn from that. Um, so really can I can I give you another yeah. example? What something really something really profound happens. So mm -hmm. I am I I have a one of my clients is a large retail brand which everybody knows and there's a young lady who works for them who has really suffered quite profoundly from racism and um she after the george floyd she wrote she she took time she meditated she fought and then she wrote a um she wrote a email to her boss mm -hmm. and she called me and she was just she was literally shaken and she was tearful and um she read it to me and it was it was a powerful powerful message and i said you have to send it but then she kind of revealed to me in the conversation that um actually i had written something before but i had kind of reworked it reworked it reworked it and i just something just said to me read to me what you actually wrote mm -hmm. and um she wrote she read it to me and it was so it was raw it was emotional it was the truth And I said to her, you know, this is the one you have to send. Mm -hmm. And she said to me, I do, but this is, this is career suicide. Yeah, for me to send this message, it is literally career suicide. And she is extremely senior. And I mm -hmm. said to her, you do know that this is still the one you have to, to um, send. And I spoke to her and I told her that this is her Esther moment. And I, 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 I'm not sure if you know what that means, but, you know, in, in Bible, mm -hmm. Esther was sent there for such a time as this. So there comes a point in time where you are called to step up. Okay. Um, and so she did. And again, it is about that truthfulness because for too long, we have had to sanitize and to dumb down our stories. Yes. And this is an opportunity where we need to now be liberated from those fears of speaking up. Because if we do, if we... If we fail to seize this time and speak up, yeah, you will be dumbed yeah. down for the rest of your life. Absolutely. I agree 100%. And um, it's, it's, yeah, it's an important story. Thank you for sharing that. Um, but still, you know, I just... I understand her point of view and I understand yours as well. Uh -huh. And and I wonder then how, what happened then when she did share her truth? <laughs> uh, okay, so she called me. So basically what happened is that um, um, she got two emails the next day, one from a very, very, I mean, somebody from the top of the tree saying, mm -hmm. I need to meet with you urgently. Yeah, because of what you wrote. I need to see you personally. And then she got another message from another party apologizing to her, yeah, and saying, I couldn't sleep because of what you wrote. Um, and she met with that, uh, she met with her senior and she was nervous. She rang me before, she was nervous, she was crying, etc. But, you know, we just encouraged her. She went in and, and she told her story and it was very liberating. And now things are shifting. Things are shifting mm -hmm. because she told the truth and that person was receptive to the truth. That person was uncomfortable with the truth, but they were brave enough to recognize that actually, despite the discomfort, I have, a, I have an obligation and a duty to act upon what I'm hearing now. And I think 
one of the things you will find is that there will always be there will always be some that will try to manipulate your truth to for their convenience but there are people out there now and there are more and more people who are willing to listen to to experience some discomfort but recognizing mm -hmm. that they have a duty a moral duty in terms of being a leader to actually make things change so um it was a, a real moment for her it was a real moment of shift and yeah. it was i believe is actually going to be pivotal to real change in that organization wow okay good thing it it ends this way <laughs> it's very reassuring um so in your letter get back to your letter because it was so inspiring to me you 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 also speak you shared about how much um your brother uh as most of us were was very very affected by the events mm -hmm. um and and as a gesture of as a way of comforting him you sent him the love your neighbor as thyself which is kind of like a christian commandment mm -hmm. um you sent him that verse mm -hmm. uh so Is, is your faith in your life one of the tools you are using to deal with this situation that we're going through? And, um, and what are the other tools for people who maybe are not um, prone to a religion or any faiths uh, that you are using that you could advise people to use? Okay, so for me personally, my faith is defines who I am. And it was... And What was interesting is that I had to have conversations with myself. Um, so even after I sent that scripture to my really close friend, Nathan, because I just felt that I needed to encourage him in a way because I could see his struggle. And he's a, he's a Christian as well. And, you know, we have, to, we have to go to scripture to say, actually, yeah, how do we respond to these things? So that's mm -hmm. what, yeah. But even in the midst of that, I had to question myself. And the question... I had to ask myself was this, do I respond as a black man first and then a Christian or a Christian first and then a black man? Mm -hmm. Now you may think that there are, there's not much different, but actually there's a profound difference okay. because, and the fundamental difference to me is that it will temper and channel my anger. Does that make sense? Okay. So your anger as a black man would be yeah. tempered by your... My, my faith. Because if I allow myself to react as a... Because one of the things, the reason I say that is um, the George Floyd thing brought up a lot of history for me. So I remember things from childhood, etc., and it kind of brought it all to the forefront. And I don't know if you've ever seen 14 Days in May. No. It was a documentary of a black man who was executed uh, um, in America. So he was put to the, um, he was executed by the, ex, um, on the death, on the chair, electric chair, or something mm -hmm. of that nature. And then I think within 24 hours or 40, yeah, very soon afterwards, yeah, the person mm -hmm. who committed the crime or the, there was a confession, yeah, and that this man was innocent. Wow. And, but it was too late. And that just had such a profound impact upon me. And so it really, and you, you can appreciate, I grew up in a place where I was the only black child in the area, the only black child that went to my school, et cetera, yeah? These things had a profound impact. And so when there was a lot of anger, which really had never really been dealt with, 
So when these incidents happen, it will it stirs history in you. And if the history has not been dealt with properly, you can really spill out and actually deal with things, what I would say, in a way which is not conducive to you and also not conducive to others. Mm-hmm. But my faith was able to kind of, you know, I mean, like, you know, I ask questions in terms of, okay, what, what, what do the scriptures tell me? And, you know, one of the most profound scriptures, but also one of the hardest scriptures is love thy neighbor as thyself. Now, you think that's an easy scripture in terms of treat others how you want to be treated. Yeah, it's very simple. What happens, but what happens when that person hates you or fears you? And yet scripture really kind of tells us that we must love them anyway, because it's easy to love someone who loves you, but it's far more difficult to love someone, yeah, who hates you or who fears you. But yet that's got to be the driver because change will not come from hate plus hate. Yeah. 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 And, and that's a really, yeah. If you look at any formula, if you put hate plus hate equals hate, hate plus fear equals, yeah, those formulas yeah. will never get you to change. And so therefore, we have to look at how do we use love as a fundamental, yeah, to actually yeah. create change. That doesn't sit well to your, to your angry man. Okay. Is, is that making sense? I understand. I understand. So can we love and be angry or do you think these two things cannot like live together <laughs> that's a really good question <laughs> and the qu- i think the answer is yes you can because if we say if we look at love being what underpins everything yeah okay mm-hmm. there will be incidences and there will be circumstances that will cause you to be angry mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. but the difference is that your reaction won't be fearful or hateful because anger 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 tends to lead to hate or fear so at least to a negative to a violent to some type of response like that yeah okay mm-hmm. whereas okay. if if you underpin it with love you respond with love you're going to probably be a more measured more thoughtful yeah and kinder mm-hmm. with your actions do you, do you remember the incident do you remember the image of the um, protester that black protester who picked up that white guy yes, and walked sorry. with him. Yeah. Do you remember that image? Yes, I do. Yeah? In that moment, that was, an, that was, that was a, a moment of love. You may not have termed it that way, but essentially that's what it was because it would have been very easy to leave that man on the floor and who knows what would have happened. Yes. Yeah? Yeah. One of the things we must understand is that the, the, the solution to all of this Yeah, anger yeah, will, must be channeled. So one of my other analogies is this, and I um, don't get angry, yeah, don't get mad, get even. Okay. How do you channel your anger? And so okay. for me, it's about if you channel your anger into activities which are destructive, you will be a victim of that destruction yourself. Yeah. Mm-hmm. If you channel your anger into constructive solutions, then you benefit and other be- others will benefit too. So for me, it's about what are the me? I'm very economically driven in terms of we need to construct mm-hmm. an economic infrastructure. Yeah. That yeah. allows us to overcome some of these challenges. Me personally, 
Um, my company, my office is my staff are black. Um, it's a black-owned company. It's a black majority organization in terms of staff. Yeah? Okay? <laughs> I have always said very clearly and without apology that I want to get my company to a place where if we have young black men, young black females who are not being given opportunities by others, we should be the ones giving those opportunities. Yeah. So I want to grow my business to say to a young person who's in problems, etc., sort yourself out and you've got a job. Because if we don't employ our young people, who's going to employ them? Yeah. That's about that economic strategy. So that's the don't get mad, get even. For me, it's about growing our infrastructures, growing our businesses, so that actually we have an economic viability that we have not had for since we've been in this country. Mm -hmm. Okay. So I want to get back to this economic part as well uh -huh. in a minute. Um, but yeah, that's a really interesting answer. So you would say faith, the tools are faith and love and love. economy. I think it's got to be, I think the issue is this, yeah, always mm -hmm. make sure that it's constructive. Always make sure that it's building you, yeah? Mm -hmm. Because one of, the, one, of the, one of the problems with emotions is that we, we react in the moment, but the consequences of that can be a lifetime. Absolutely. Yeah? And yeah. so the issue for me is pause, take a breath, yeah? Mm -hmm. Think about this with a logical mind, yeah? And yes. like, so it's about, it's not to say don't be angry, but it's about how you, if you channel it incorrectly, you will be the person that is likely to come off worse. And we don't want that. We've seen enough of our young people who have been angry. We've seen the reactions. We've seen the challenges. Yeah. And we've yes. got to really look at alternative ways. Absolutely. Okay. Okay, great. Thank you. Thank you for this answer. It's pretty clear. Um, so in, in the letter, you also spoke about the construct of um, racism in the U.S. VS, mm -hmm. uh, versus the racism in the U.K. So could you please explain to uh, your audience, and obviously to me, because I'm, I just newly came to uh, the U.K., and of course, due to the cultural influence of the U.S., I have more knowledge about the situation there than I have about the situation in the U.K. So could you please just explain what what is the distinction that you're making between those um, different constructs of racism? I think, you know, fundamentally, fundamentally, um, the U.S., has a very unique history, um, born in slavery. And Spike Lee basically said it extremely well. So that when he kind of traced the inequalities in America, he kind of identified three foundations to the country. Um, and he, what did he say? He said, slavery, segregation, or oppression. So those are three fundamentals to the construction of that country. Mm. And therefore, hatred is a real element of it. So, you know, economics, yeah, clearly there's the race has always been an economic issue as well. But mm -hmm. hatred and fear have been real drivers for the American, yeah? Yes. Yeah. yeah. And I believe that today you, you see such a venomous society, yeah? yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. And you see such a fearful society, but the fear often kind of 
is express his anger so that they will try to um, label black people as angry and hateful, but actually it is fear. The thing is this, yeah, if you look at the American system, yeah, the Americans, yeah, if you look at um, the American construct, yeah, it has been built upon hatred and fear. Yeah? Yes. And often yeah. I see that the hatred has come from white America, yeah, mm. along mm. with the fear. And I've often seen the black response to the hatred and the fear to be fear. Mm. But fear can manifest as anger. Yeah? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Does that, yeah? Yeah, and absolutely. Anger. But what they try to do is label us as hating, but actually yes. it's not hating. We've never really been in that position to hate. Yeah. yeah? Yes. I mean, I don't know about you, but can you imagine a mother who, after hours, their son didn't come home and she is wondering, is my son hanging from a tree? Oh my God. Yeah. That's the worst thing to, yeah? to be having to go through. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. And the thing is this, this is not history. This is contemporary. I remember, um, I remember it wasn't maybe 10 years ago. I can't remember exactly when I saw a newspaper. It was a, it was the observer. I'm sure. Yeah. And they showed a contemporary lynching in America. So this is not just a 1950, 1960 construct. Yeah. yeah. It was only a few years ago that, yeah. And even now, they're yes. still doing sort of, and well, we've seen it. We saw it with George Floyd. It was just a Absolutely. different version. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. We, so I don't know about you. And um, one of the things that um, somebody, somebody else said is that I think it was, um, do you remember after 9-11? I think it was George Bush said that um, the Americas never experienced terrorism, but yet that population has been terrorized. Mm. Yeah. Ever yeah. since it had freedom. Terrorized. Absolutely. Terrorized. Tulsa, Redwood, all terrorized. Yes. The reason why I say that the UK experience is different is because we have not had that level of brutality in our history. Mm. So the level of hatred is not so much, but fear is a dominant factor in how race relations is shaped in this country. Mm. Fear of the unknown, fear of the uncertainty. So for me, that's why I've kind of differentiated the two sort of thing. And okay. it's not to in any way say that our experience is less than, mm -hmm. but it is to say that it is different. Mm. Okay. Thank you for, for explaining. So, so when it comes to that brutality, is when you're saying they haven't experienced it. So are you saying like they haven't, ex that like black people in the UK haven't experienced it like on the UK, um, soil i would say uh on because i think they have in the history of the british empire let me just quantify that mm. the uk has as we have been subjected to brutality in the uk as well yeah it has been as it has been i think a different brutality yes Fu okay fundamentally yeah yeah um because they have the right to bear arms, yeah? Yes. The likelihood of getting a bullet in your back is you know, I mean, so much more likely in the US, yeah? Yes. Okay? Um, um, and also because of the longer the history, yeah? Yes. But there, there yeah. isn't a brutality that we have experienced here, yeah? Yeah. Physically, yeah? yeah? Mm -hmm. Socially, economically, etc. Mm -hmm. And so it is not to in any way say it is less than mm -hmm. what I'm saying, it is different. Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. Okay, yeah. but it is a brutality, and the, the reality is that um, that brutality is subtler. I think that's the issue here, and that's the problem here. Because it's subtler, 
because it's not so much in your face, mm. it right. is easy for people to try to dismiss or to talk down or to say it doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. That's really interesting because I say the same thing about France uh, in comparison to the UK, where mm -hmm. it's even more insidious and, and, and more subtle and also it's i mean the, the 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 conversations are not being had at all and or when they are it's always about having to start from scratch where you have to explain once again that racism does exist and so we're always like starting from scratch and when you start to say that racism against black people or like what we call minorities exist they they start bring to, like using the anti-white racism card so mm -hmm. that's been a thing the last maybe 10 years uh so they start saying yeah but there is also like anti-white racism and so it's just really interesting to to hear um how it can be very different from one place to another the ways in which um in which it, the machine works in order to just, uh, I think it's gaslighting, to be honest. It's just in order. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, in order to just gaslight us and just have us really start from scratch every time to prove something. And yeah. Would you say that, would you say that the French brutality has been much more psychological? Oh, yes. It's yes. It's very, very strong on the psychological level. It's very mm -hmm. present in um, like the financial econ economic levels as well, because you're not you, you cannot like you can you do not see people, uh, black people or mostly in Paris. You can see some black people who are mm -hmm. like on certain levels when it comes to their 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 careers. But it's like it's not a very a thing that is that you're able to see a lot of, uh, and so and you're being gaslit to think that it's your fault. So that's how it's like very Absolutely. psychological, and then it's also the thing is like we we don't have any studies that can really pinpoint it because we're not supposed to talk about race. So okay. so we're just like going around it, but never really saying oh maybe there's an issue with. Uh, black women in healthcare. We can't really say that uh, because we don't have any studies that prove that. But then we experience it. But there's nothing to prove it. Uh, we can't say, okay, there's an issue with like a lot of black uh, men and women who have like uh, degrees but are not getting the jobs that they're qualified for. But there mm -hmm. are no numbers because we're not allowed to. Um, so <laughs> it's like... Yeah, it's very psychological, and 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 there is police brutality as well. Like they've been protesting in France for a while now regarding uh, a, a, a specific case, uh, a young man named Adama Traoré who was killed uh, by the police and other young men uh, and women who were brutalized and killed as well. But mm -hmm. it's still the same thing. I mean, when you look at the debates. Um, whether it's like the politicians or the media, which are, of course, 
like the great majority of them are are white of course are always gaslighting people and and just they they always agree on one thing whether they're from the from the left far right whatever they basically always agree on one thing is that racism does not really exist and we have to prove that it does absolutely absolutely terrible that's really terrible so yeah i would say it's very subtle and it's very um it's tiring it's really tiring to not be able to talk about it without proving having to prove once again that you are going through that so yeah absolutely so um so your company offers different services which include also equality and diversity training so when you were talking in your mm -hmm. letter Uh, you made a very important point about being brave enough to face the uncomfortable truths about racism. So you were talking mm -hmm. basically about the, the the people who are following um, the trainings uh, in equality and diversity. So could you tell us more about that? One of the things, one of the things I have been grappling with for many years is how do you really make impact in terms of diversity and inclusion training, okay? Um, because I think there's a couple of things. Firstly, I think one of the things I've said is that up until literally this month, race has always been kicked into the long grass, mm. always. Um, It's always been around gender because people are very comfortable. Well, they're not necessarily very comfortable, but they're far more comfortable dealing with gender, yeah, mm -hmm. um, than race. Race is always the thing that gets kicked into the long grass because that that it is such an uncomfortable conversation, yeah. Mm -hmm. So you have to question yourself: Why are the majority so uncomfortable, yeah, yeah. dealing with an issue about a minority? Yeah. There has to be something about this conversation that is so profound yes. that a majority, because it, let's use a, simple, a silly example. Let's say that uh, 10 of us support the blue team, yeah, and one of us supports the green team. I don't think the blue team would have much problems talking about their, their issues. Which, does that make sense? Yes, absolutely. Yeah? Yeah. And, um, So for me, it's been about how do you do this? Now, what is really important is that you need to recognize that without allies, nothing changes. Because with the reality is this year, white middle class men occupy the positions of influence of power. That's not changing overnight. Yes, yeah? yeah. Okay. Yeah. And if we lose them in the conversation, you've lost opportunities. Mm -hmm. And so I've always been very aware that how do you ensure that you validate everybody but then take them on that journey and the question the issue for me is, is if you don't validate if i don't validate you as a white middle class male yeah yeah and that is actually yeah. okay to be white middle class yeah, yeah. how yeah mm -hmm. how can i get you to shift the other thing that i've really recognized is this and i you can agree or disagree i believe that the british are not comfortable with themselves Okay. Now, let me actually, let me pin that down even further. I believe that the English are not comfortable with themselves. Okay. 
The Scottish are very proud and have no problems calling themselves Scottish. Yeah, mm-hmm. the Welsh the same, the Irish the same. But when you ask people about whether they're English, there's a nervousness around the conversation. Okay. When you look at the the Union Jack or the George flag, there's a nervousness about doing it because it's often been hijacked by the far right, etc. And there's this nervousness, yeah, mm-hmm. that English people fundamentally have about who they are. Okay. So if you're not comfortable with yourself, how can you be comfortable with others? Yeah. Yeah? Yes. And I think that this is a and I think this is one of the reasons why there is a discomfort in this whole debate. And so until you're comfortable with you, there's no way you're going to be comfortable with me. Yeah. Okay? Okay. So that's part of the construct. Then we've got to get people now, what we do is this, is that my job, uh, my, what, our ethos is stimulating brilliance. What that means is that we believe there's brilliance in every single person. Mm-hmm. Now, to stimulate something, so if you strike a match, there's got to be some friction because you don't strike a match without any friction. Mm-hmm. Light does not come from without friction. Does that make sense? Yes, yes, yes. My job is to bring that friction. Mm-hmm. That's what I do. So the issue for us is that one of the things we do in terms of how we construct our learning is that we understand the power of conversation, okay? Yes. Now, one of the things we recognize here is this, is that often people will try to um, sanitize, dumb down, distort the conversation so that it stays in a safe place for themselves. Yeah. Would you agree? Yes, absolutely. I, I, I developed this question last night. Yeah, whilst talking to my team, so I'm on the phone with my team, and we're kind of we're kind of planning and developing and kind of encouraging each other. Mm-hmm. And I was mm-hmm. thinking, what is what is the question? And I'm not sure. Yeah, and this is the question that, and I want you to imagine you're in a classroom, and I ask you this question: What is your motivation for denying people their potential? Oh wow! Wow, that is um. Yeah, it's very uncomfortable. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Now, many people, you know, now I would, if I was asked that question, I would be shifting in my seat. Yes. But fundamentally, that is the intention behind racism, sexism, homophobia. It is an intention, it is that you are motivated to deny somebody their potential. Yes. Now, when you put it like that, yeah. Mm-hmm. Highly uncomfortable, but what I've done there is this. I've removed the word race for a moment. Does that make sense? Yeah. And I've humanized yeah. it. Yeah? Mm-hmm. Now, if I ask you that question and I said, but actually you're guilty of this, firstly, you're going to deny it. Yes. But if you've got to yeah. the point of accepting it, then just imagine if you start to add the layer of race. Now we are in a place where but you've accepted that either deliberately or uh, unintentionally, you have potentially denied the potential of another person yes. or another group of people, yeah? Yes. If we yeah. recognize that we've done it either intentionally, yeah? Yeah. We are now yeah. in a space that actually we can have a conversation. Yeah. But if I attack you in that learning process, I've lost you. Absolutely. So it's always about how do you take people on the journey? What are the questions that stimulate the conversation? When do you use that type of question? Because you could use that potentially with a group of senior leaders because there's a maturity about them, but maybe with middle managers, you would lose them because you've just insulted their integrity, et cetera. Yes. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And so there is, a, there is this kind of, there's always this, this um, balance that we're having to fight between, yeah, 
give them the truth, yeah, unsanitized, as opposed to actually they need to come on a journey. Mm. Yeah? You're always having to walk that tightrope, recognizing that if we get that correct, we open up people's minds, we open up their thinking, and we're likely to achieve change. But the minute you shut down because of fear, because of prejudice, whatever it is, yeah, we've lost that person for potentially a lifetime. Yeah. And so it is, unfortunately, it is, the reality is it is a balance that we have to achieve. Um, we tend to get it right. I think now in this season, we're going to be really tested because whereas before, I think gender is an easier one to converse about. Yes. Yeah? yeah. It's an easier yeah. one because, you know, with gender, it's very, very simple. Um, it's really interesting because all you've got to do is say, if your daughter was denied these rights, men will get really angry and up in arms. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. If it was your wife, yeah. if it was your sister, yeah? Yes. It's an yeah. easier argument to win, yeah? Yes. Oh, not saying that the movement will be uh, quick, but it's an easier argument to win. Race isn't that easy. No. That's really interesting. And I, I, it's another conversation, I guess, but I've always been surprised about that, how... Um, because before they have children, of course, it's like, or if it don't, they don't have sisters, it's, it's always, mm -hmm. you always have to refer to, I guess, something they know. Yep, absolutely. And, um, I don't know, maybe I might be generalizing in my mind, but I think that's something that's more necessary when it comes to men, um, than it is when it comes to women. Um... <laughs> But that's, I guess that's, I, I don't. I don't think you're incorrect. I actually don't think you're incorrect. Yeah, I guess that's another conversation uh, for another time. But yeah, absolutely. Yeah, but it, but it's pretty interesting, and of course, it's difficult to to tell someone like if they if they are not a part of a community where there is diversity in any way, it's quite difficult to. It's alien. It's alien to them. Exactly. Exactly. It's completely alien to them, so it's quite difficult to find a point of reference for them to be able to uh, connect to. So, yeah, but it's really interesting the way you you approach it. And 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 it's very interesting that now, um, yeah, there has to be a, a reckoning with that part as well, with the part of race as well, more than there used to be. So Absolutely. That's great. That's really well. It's it's. I guess it's a turning point in that sense. Um. So so uh, when I reached out to you, um, at first it was just um partly to check on you as a member of the community and and um of my community uh, and also to hear another point of view because I know you always have like an another point of view. So I reached out to a few people. Um, that you also know, and I just really needed like to have a discussion because it was a time of turmoil to me uh, mm -hmm. after after George Floyd's death and everything that that happened afterwards, and and the the questions that um, that that were raised for me personally and for 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 society in general. And, and sure enough, your words were a great help for me. I really, really want to thank you for that. 
Um, and one of the things you shared with me was about how we have to support each other and raise each other economically. So you spoke about this a little bit at the beginning of the interview. And as I said, we would come back to this. So could you mm -hmm. share more about that economic part? Because I always have like some sort of interest in that, but also I kind of look at it like mm, maybe, maybe not. So can you tell me more about that? I think there are many layers to this. Mm -hmm. um, so the first layer is this. Historically, generations in this country have had to start again. And what I mean by that is that when parents have mm -hmm. deceased, they are left with nothing. Yes. Other than maybe sometimes bills, yeah? yeah. So often we don't have um, insurance policies, we don't have wills, those types of things, yeah? Yeah. Now, these are basics, yeah, mm -hmm. which will allow generations to start building as opposed to going back to zero. So it's almost like you're playing a game, yeah, you've got it, yeah, yeah and then you have to go back to the start again. Yes. And, and then yeah. you can start again. Mm -hmm. That means fundamentally, yeah, mm -hmm. any other counterparts are way ahead in the game because. Yeah, they've got three, four generations of wealth which they're building upon. Absolutely. Yeah? Mm -hmm. And so fundamentally, there's, there are some fundamentals which we need to ensure so that when you, um, when you pass, mm -hmm. have you, what are you leaving for your children? Mm -hmm. Yeah? Mm -hmm. um, is there a will? Mm -hmm. Is there an insurance? Uh, is there... Definitely, uh, life insurance. Mm -hmm. Little things like these make a massive difference to actually allowing our families to progress. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. So that's one level. So therefore, I, I, I really urge um, people to make sure that what are the fundamental, yeah, mm -hmm. economic mm -hmm. fundamentals that we must have in place to make sure our families are okay. Mm -hmm. That would make a massive difference in itself. Yeah. Secondly, and this is my this is my thought process, and so I'm not saying it is the truth, mm -hmm. but a lot of our businesses, black-owned businesses, are just about surviving, and I call them kind of subsistence, yeah. And we've got to look mm -hmm. at how do we actually invigorate them, support them, build their capacity, so that actually they go beyond just surviving and just coping to the ability to actually become wealthier, mm. more sustainable, mm. and also therefore potentially create more employment. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, I think, have you seen it on uh, Facebook, Black-owned economy? Yes, yeah? yes. In yeah. the space of days, yeah, yes. hundreds yeah. of Black-owned businesses have congregated in one space. Mm -hmm. Phenomenal. And it took a young lady with a little bit of vision and a little bit of guts to do something. Suddenly there's this congregation. Mm -hmm. So this is now this this active directory. Yeah. Yes. Now, you know, you know, the economics in terms of how long um, I'm sure you've probably heard about the economics in terms of how long does a pound stay within the black community compared to others. Yeah. OK. Yeah. Could you tell us more about that? Okay, so one of the stats I read before was um, if, a, if, if a pound goes in, if money goes into the 
the Chinese community, it will 96% of it will stay within the Chinese community. Mm. So therefore, let's call it leakage, yeah? Mm -hmm. Yeah, you're looking at a leakage of around 4%. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yes. Um, the stat I read, and this was some time ago, is that if, if, uh, if, uh, if money comes into the black community, 26% of it will remain within the black community. Wow. That gives you a leakage of 76%. Oh, wow. Okay. So do you see the profound difference? Yes, I do. So it's not that we don't have economic um, power, yeah? Mm -hmm. It's just that we are not using it as wisely as we could do, yeah, mm -hmm. to create stronger economic frameworks. Mm -hmm. What's my rationale for this? Um, I was at a conference, and this is what was said. If you're not invited to the table, you're on the menu. Mm. And we are on the menu. So when you see um, organizations putting um, foot lockers, et cetera, into black communities, it's because we're on the menu. Mm -hmm. We are seen as the consumers. We're not seen as the producers. And we have to fundamentally, yeah, mm -hmm. look at this. Now, the fact is that the businesses are out there, yeah? So it's not that we're devoid of businesses. We're not devoid of entrepreneurs in any way, shape, or form, mm -hmm. yeah? Mm -hmm. What we are potentially is the visibility and the support, those two things. Mm -hmm. And then the other thing for me is then, then the commitment. So, for example, if I shop with you, I'm going to be very intentional where I spend my money, mm -hmm. but I want you not just to prosper yourself, mm -hmm. but I want you to think about how do you now impact? How do we get you employing other young people? Because we have a high proportion of unemployment in our community. We need to take control over that mm -hmm. because the wider community have proven not to care. Mm -hmm. And if we don't care, why should they? Yeah. Yes. And so, therefore, I think we've got to be um, much more intentional and very deliberate in terms of the decisions we make in terms of economically. I personally, I did this with my family. I made it, I made it very, very clear. I said, from the time my children were young, you will not work for other people. Yeah? You will construct your own businesses. And my son has the, um, in my opinion, the best escape room in London. Mm -hmm. He is an amazing mm -hmm. young entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. My daughter has got an entrepreneurial flair, yeah? She's working right now, but it's an apprenticeship. She will go on, she will learn from them, she will move on. I constructed something very deliberately within my family. Wow. I've constructed yeah. it. Can I just share it? Like, I have, um, I have, let's say I've got 15 nephews and nieces, yeah? Mm -hmm. Guess how many of them have their own business? Okay, tell me. 15 of them, all of them. Wow. Oh, wow. Yeah, there has been a deliberateness and an intentionality about how we push the, yeah? yeah? And now what we've got to do is make sure that that's not just for my family. It's like, who else can I impact on? Who else can I affect? Yes. So I have a job to actually help develop black businesses. I've got a vision to launch 1,000 young black entrepreneurs. Wow. That's the vision that's actually driving me right now. Wow. I love it. Yeah? Yeah. I love it. Okay. We've got to be intentional. Yeah? yeah, we've got to be intentional. We've got the skills, we've got the gifting, we are the talented ones, we've got it, but we've just got to be, we, it's almost like the jigsaw pieces are almost there. So let's not say with the jigsaw pieces are there. It's not like that we are missing pieces. We just got to kind of put it together. Yeah. I, when we put it together, uh, mm -hmm. yeah, you're going to see businesses flourish. You're going to see businesses like, yeah, being supported. And then suddenly, the ability to one, the ability to kick us becomes less. 
Yes. That's why they don't like Stormzy. They don't like Stormzy because, yeah, yeah, they can't muzzle him and they can't stop him. So when he says, I'm giving £10 million to black-owned businesses, yeah, mm-hmm. it irritates them because suddenly we're in a position where, and we can do this, and you can't stop it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, you convinced me. Like, I was like, at the beginning, I was like, mm. And you have convinced me. You have. It is, it is yeah. imperative. It is absolutely imperative. There are fundamental constructs of society, you mm-hmm. know what I mean? In terms of social, kind of family, etc. Mm-hmm. Economics, yeah, is fundamental, mm-hmm. yeah? Mm-hmm. We have, think about how many of our educated people are cleaning. Yeah. Yeah. It is you, know, you have yes. people driving cabs who are more qualified than the passengers, yes. often, with masters, and yet they're driving, and I'm not belittling driving a cab. Mm-hmm. What I'm saying is that we have been pushed into places where we don't belong. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And we've now got to think about, actually, how can it be that I have a guy who's come to this country who's super qualified, super brilliant, I, I spoke to one guy, I, I was on the Isle of Man. This guy, yeah, when I say he used to be, he was um, responsible for mining, yeah, mining minerals in Africa. Mm. He found himself stacking shelves in a shop, yeah. yeah, and yeah, and I just felt it for him that you've got such talent, mm-hmm. but you refuse to use it. So again, it goes back to that question, what is your motivation for denying the potential of other people? Yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I, I just want to explain the reason why I was always so cautious about people talking about like, we have to make money, we have to make money, we have to make money. Because um, I think something in my mind is about what um, one of the, the quotes from Audrey Lord is about the master's tools. Uh, so uh-huh. saying we cannot uh, use the master's tools to dismantle um, um what the master has built, like I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but uh-huh. yeah. Uh, so that's always on my mind. And somehow um, one of the realities of racism is also that it was, it, there is, um, it, it helped uh, and was used to build capitalism. So um, for me, when I hear, when I usually hear that, I think about like all of the black billionaires and all of the black millionaires um, that we hear about and talk about. Uh, most of them are like athletes, black athletes, black singers and artists and all that. And it's um, and and I always look at them and and, and look at um, the the people who aspire to be them. But mm-hmm. a lot of the times. Um, they are not doing anything to 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 change the agenda to change um to change what uh white supremacy has built they they are just profiting from it and doing their best to stay in those systems and protect themselves um so of course i would challenge that okay i would challenge that okay because i think what I think there is a notion that wealthy people are fundamentally mean and only look after themselves. And if you dig beneath the surface, often that's not the case. If you dig beneath the surface, often these guys are doing charitable stuff, but they just don't talk about it. 
Yeah, which also I find problematic. It's just just to give you like I'm not for me it's not about them being mean or anything. I I believe um I'm trying not to generalize because some of them actually do things and give back and all of that, but a lot of them do it quietly. And the one of the reasons why I wonder why they do it quietly is maybe not to um, ruffle any feathers, contrary to the example you gave before of Stormzy, for instance, who just does it openly and, and he owns it. Um, not to quote, I think it's one of his songs, but <laughs> he actually really does that. Um, mm -hmm. So I'm I'm just thinking about like it's changing, kind of changing now with uh, what happened with the, the the murder of George Floyd. It's cha change a lot. A lot of people are really changing because of that, and they can't really afford to um, to to be quiet about it. And hopefully, it's not just performative. Hopefully, it's really about the real change. Uh, but when I think about, for instance, Jay Z, uh, and and he he has been for years supporting families of um, young men and women who were killed, uh, but like quietly doing that. And then when he came to supporting, uh, I would say yeah, supporting and working with the NFL after they kicked out um, Colin Kaepernick, uh -huh. and after they uh, decided that. Uh, anyone who didn't uh, res respect, uh, I'm just putting quotes on it, but like respect as they mm -hmm. say the flag uh, mm -hmm. and didn't stand up for the anthem would be kicked off. He openly and publicly endorsed them by working with them. So I, I sometimes wonder what, what they decide to keep quiet and what they decide to do openly and why are they trying to, who are they trying to appease by doing that? But I mean, yeah, this is just another story, but like in general, I've always had this idea of what, of, of just saying that's not enough. Um, but the way you're putting it, like the way you're saying like if you, when you're successful, you're helping like businesses grow the way you're saying that. Um, I feel like if we all, if everyone who's like going, moving forward, instead of becoming gatekeepers, decide to do exactly that, it would be amazing. So that's why I'm saying you've convinced me because your approach is an approach I can get behind. Okay, I understand that. And I think one of the things we've got to do is that we've got to be comfortable with economics and we've got to be comfortable with money. Yes. I think one of the things, so for example, we were working with a charity and like we said, the same amount of energy it costs to get a £5,000 grant, you can get a £100,000 grant, yeah? But you've always been focusing on the £5,000 grant and therefore you've always been survival mode and you've been struggling. And there comes this kind of self-fulfilling prophecy that I'm supposed to struggle. Mm. Yeah. Yes. And that is that is a characteristic, yeah, yes. of um, a lot of people who are uh, who are struggling. They almost feel that they're supposed to struggle, and therefore they feel the way out is the lottery or something of that nature. No, and that's why we have to really con constructive. We're taught to get a job and be grateful for a job. No, that's not that is not um, what it's about. We should be looking at how do we generate wealth. Now, what is wealth? Wealth is different from being rich. Wealth is different from a, yeah, from a job. It's about actually creating a system that perpetuates itself. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. 
Yeah, because the reality is, is if you fall ill tomorrow, if I fall ill tomorrow, yeah, mm-hmm. I can't. Have, yeah, most people can't afford to fall ill. Even in this pandemic, you've seen families who say, "Oh my God, I can't stop working." That means, if we think about it, something's fundamentally wrong with the construct of their economics because what they've put themselves into is a system which perpetually keeps them working but gives them very little out, reward out of it. Yes. If yeah. you start, slightly start to change that construct, yeah, okay, mm-hmm. then suddenly you get families that are economically viable. When you're economically viable, you can eat better, yeah? Yes. You can sleep better. Mental health issues reduce. Yes. Children are going to school, but all of these things start to happen. But we're very, we're very uncomfortable with money. And what happens is that our young people are sick of our, their parents being broke, and they almost do the they kind of the, the pendulum swings the other way in terms of they do anything for money. Mm. The reason they do anything for money is because they're sick to death of mum suffering. Um, I, I, you hear stories of young black kids. I remember these these kids went on a trip, yeah. Mm-hmm. And this is a simple thing, um, breakfast time, cornflakes. Um, they're pouring milk on the cornflakes. And one of the kids says, what are you doing? He says, I'm having breakfast. He had never seen milk associated with cornflakes. Uh-huh. The family uh-huh. with that broke. Yeah. Yeah, 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 absolutely. So simple economic truths are liberating. I'm not saying that you all must become rich. That's not all I'm saying. I'm saying that you should have dreams, you should aspire, you should become, yeah? Okay? Some of you will become millionaires, some of you won't. It doesn't matter. But what you must do is break cycles of poverty. And we have to educate people that you can can earn 15, 20,000, 25,000 a year and not be in poverty because of the economics you have applied in terms of you've got savings, you've got a few investments, you you know what to do with money. Yeah. It puts us yeah. in a much stronger position. Oh, absolutely. I love that. I really, really love that. Um, I, I have a lot of follow-up questions on this, actually. It might it might have to be a whole other podcast, actually. Because That's fine. No problem at all. I'm more than happy. Yeah, because this is very, very important. And I've been hearing people talk about that. And it's still very foreign to me. So I really would like for us to just follow up on this at, at like, another time. Um, Absolutely. Great. Uh, so... So as a father and a husband, what are the conversations that you're currently having with your family around uh, these questions of racism and, and police brutality? Well, um, it's really interesting because my daughter is 23, my son is 28, mm-hmm. and I never thought I would have to have these conversations. And suddenly we are almost, because my, my children have, okay, I, I believe they've had a very good upbringing. Um, they have been privileged in a number of ways and they have experienced some extremely distressing moments in their, in their lives. Mm-hmm. Um, what's very interesting is that, you know, they have naturally congregated around black friends. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. And there's something which um, has been very visible, very obvious. And obviously that commonality I think George Floyd has brought a truth to them that they didn't necessarily, they were never aware of. So my children have never experienced 
what I experienced. I was beaten up by the National Front. I had to run for my life on many occasions, yeah? yeah? yeah. Um, I grew up in the height of racism. I mean, like, when you had the skinheads, that was the era in which I grew up. Yeah. My children haven't grown up in that, and I grew up outside of, uh, of London as well. Yeah. And so, and it was really too because when they were young, I was really trying to encourage them to become more aware of their uh, African heritage, um, uh, and you know, bought them the books and they read them reluctantly, <laughs> sort of thing. So, but now I have my son went on the march and like um, I had to ask him, "Why are you marching?" And he had a friend uh, who we used to do the Saturday job with, and six officers broke his friend's neck. Oh my god. And this young man is in a vegetative state and will never live life. He was, he was, a, he was going to be a lawyer, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, the police. And this guy's, this guy's shorter than you, Laurentine. And that's short. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> they broke his neck. Oh, God. Yeah. And these are the truths that, and what's interesting is that just beneath the surface, yeah, They've been experiencing these things, but we've never really had the conversation. So they've been living with a truth that I didn't even really know about. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. Um, my daughter, I mean, what happened is that um, I, we were in the car and I pulled out and this motorbike came up behind me and the, the, the wickedness that came out of his mouth, my daughter had never heard language like that before, 23 years old, and it shocked her to the core. Mm. And so suddenly this race issue is now prominent in their lives in a way it wasn't before. Mm -hmm. So they've always been very confident, confident and comfortable with their blackness. You know, one of the things I've always done is this, I've taken them home to Nigeria mm -hmm. because I said to them, I want you to see, yeah, mm -hmm. successful black people. Mm -hmm. Yeah? yeah. So my son said he wanted to do property development. And in this country that used to be, that, that tends to be, um, uh, yeah, you take uh, a couple of flats, etc. I took him home to stretch him because I said, you see that block there that belongs to your uncle, that block over there belongs to your uncle. Mm -hmm. I needed to stretch them. Yeah. So they've always had that, they've had this kind of, this very aspirational um, home life. Mm -hmm. But this, this issue has opened up race to them in a way that it hasn't before. My son is now reading. He's starting to become really curious and interested. And so... And in terms of my wife, I think, you know, it is a reality we lived, but not necessarily spoken about that much. Now we're having to speak about it because uh, it is now part of our children's construct, which we had hoped it wouldn't be, but it now, it, it, it very much is. Mm. Yeah. But the issue for them is this, yeah, um, you know, you can appreciate that. How do you respond to this? As I said, don't get mad, get even. Mm. Absolutely. Build your businesses, build your infrastructure so that no one can ever sack him. No one's ever going to sack my son because he's not going to be in a sackable position. Yeah, absolutely. It's just, yeah, it's heartbreaking. Um, but as you said, uh, it's really about, it's not about just staying in the, in the emotion. Um, it's about going beyond the emotion Absolutely. And having a strategy. And uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, so finally, uh, my last question. So as a mentor, you were you are a mentor to a lot of people and a successful mm -hmm. businessman, as well as an active member of, of community. 
as has been obvious throughout our conversation, uh, what is the message or advice that you want to convey to Black women and men at this moment? Wow, what's the message? I think it's be you unapologetically. Mm. Just be you, yeah? I want you to live your dreams. I want you to fulfill your potential. I want you to find the right people who will believe in your dreams and, and work with you. I want you to think about where you focus your energy. Because, you know, we've got two things in finite amount. We've got a finite amount of time and we've got a finite amount of energy. Yeah. And I think often we waste a lot of energy and a lot of time. And I think if you constructively use those and intentionally use those, just imagine what you can get. This is this is your opportunity. So be unap unapologetically yours and don't fear because fear is a crippler. So, do you know, like the fear of losing a job, I say to people, you'll get another one. If you're that good, you'll get another one. Don't fear, because that is a weapon that has been used against us for far too long. And it's time to try to just, you know I mean, put that weapon down and actually just understand who you are, understand the brilliance you have, understand the capacity and just be you unapologetically. Yeah. So yeah, I think that's what I want to leave with people. That's amazing. That's an amazing message to 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 give. Um, thank you so much again, Akin, for being here, for taking the time to speak to me. Um, I'm gonna have to listen again and again to this interview because there is <laughs> there are some gems in there. Um, and for everyone who's been listening, who will be listening to this as well, it's just full of gems um, and great, great advice. I really want to be able to follow up on the conversation on, on like economic viability yeah, sure. and, and I guess generational wealth and all of that. Cause I think, as you said, it's key and it's very important. So yeah, thank you so much, Akin. It's been an absolute pleasure, Laurentine. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. I really hope you enjoyed this conversation and took uh, as much as I did out of it. Um, I would really like to thank Akin Thomas again just for sharing his truths, his vision and his motivation. I hope it inspired you as much as it inspired me. Um, so yeah, to continue this conversation, please go to our Instagram page at Hello Culture Flow or join the Facebook group culture flow. Until next time, stay safe and stay sane. Thank you.